The following message was given by Chris Rocco on Sunday, January 14th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's good seeing you. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, if you can believe it. Um, it's good to see everyone's faces. Um, I don't get to see you all as much anymore, and it's just so great to see that you guys are still here, still around. Um, I am too, by the way. Um, lots of public confessions going on these days. Um, if you've not been in a cave and have any access to public media, you know that there's, there's a, it's almost like its own genre now of these public figures confessing, um, coming clean about sins for which they're being found out. Um, and I, w- I want to read one to you, and uh, I want to see if you can, if you know who this is. Um, this was recent. Um, I came of age in the 60s and 70s when all the rules about behavior and workplaces were different. Um, that was the culture then. Um, I have since learned that it is not an excuse in the office or out of it. I realized some, t- I realized some time ago that I needed to be a better person. And my interactions with the people I work with have changed. I appreciate that the way I've behaved with colleagues in the past has caused a lot of pain, and I sincerely apologize for it. Though I'm trying to do better now, um, I know I have a long way to go. That is my commitment. My journey will now be to learn about myself and to conquer my demons. I've brought on therapists. And I plan to take a leave of absence from my company to deal with the issue head on. Anybody know who this is yet? Just, all right, this will tell you. Um, I really do respect all women and regret what happened. Um, I want a second chance in the community, but I know I've got to work to earn it. I have goals that are now priorities. Trust me. <laughs> this isn't an overnight process. Um, I have goals. Sorry, sorry, I already said that. Trust me. This isn't written very well, by the way, anyway. Um, and my reading isn't much better. All right, so it says, and then I've been trying to do this already for 10 years. This is a wake-up call. I cannot be more remorseful about the people I've hurt, and I plan to do right by all of them. Yeah, who's this? Uh, no, close. Harvey Weinstein. Thank you for putting it out there, though. Um, Harvey Weinstein, and then he changes the subject and says, I'm going to take on the NRA, I'm going to undo Trump, and, and oh, by the way, five, and he says, five, you know, last year I gave five million to help, five million dollars to help female uh, movie producers um, at USC, oh, and I've named this scholarship after my mom. So anyway, how, how did people respond to this? Was this a satisfying Apology? Was this, was this received with, you know, forgiveness for him and acceptance? No, he was absolutely castigated for this. And why is that? It's lame. He, bl- he blame shifts to the culture. He minimizes what he's done. And if, you, if you're not completely aware, Harvey Weinstein was one of the first um, recent uh, executives that have come out or that have been called out, accused, convicted of sexual harassment and worse things 
Um, he's virtue signaling like a boss. He's like, I've been working on this already and I'm gonna atone for my sin. And I really do respect women. It's a lie. Um, and he's trying to atone for his sins. Self-atonement. There is nothing, okay, there is something humble about this, but this is not humility. This is not a true confession. And if this is not, sati- if this is not a satisfying confession, what is? Today we're gonna take a look at confession. And this is gonna be really helpful because though we do not wanna admit it, our confession of sin often sounds like Harvey Weinstein. Um, We've been in a series where we're describing this pattern of engaging God's word through prayer, through these four movements of adoring God, taking time to adore God in his word, and then moving to confession of our sin in light of that, and then thanksgiving, which is how we respond to what Jesus has done for us. And then we engage in supplication. We ask him, we petition him, we go to him then with our request for him to do stuff in us and through us and for us. Um, we've, been, we've been talking about these different steps and today it's gonna be confession. And the passage we're gonna look at today is Isaiah chapter six. Um, if you wanna turn there, it's gonna come up on the screen as well. Isaiah chapter six, verse one. This is Isaiah the prophet speaking. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one of these beings called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a coal that he had taken from the tongs, with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. It's a very well-known passage to many, um, very simple passage. It it breaks down into four easy sections. Um, We have Isaiah's vision. We have his confession. We have the forgiveness he receives and then the mission upon which he is now sent. And we're gonna work through this looking particularly at confession. What did he see? He said he saw in a dream, in some way, in his mind's eye, maybe his physical eye, we don't know. But whatever it was, it was an incredibly strong impression of the Lord. 
sitting on a throne. Meaning he saw God, he saw the king of Israel, sorry, the God of Israel had all authority. All authority to rule and to judge. And this throne is high and lifted up, which means he's greater than any other king. And then we have these angelic beings that are calling out to one another, holy, 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 over and over again. What is he seeing here? He's, he is seeing the separateness, the otherness, the transcendence of God. Holiness is this essential attribute which actually defines and describes every other thing we know about God. Everything about God is completely other than us. So if we know that God is love, he is holy love. If he's power, it's holy power. Holy being completely above and beyond anything we understand or are. If he's angry, it's holy anger. It means he's nothing like us. And this, it's holy, why holy, holy, holy? Why three times? Well, this is the way Hebrew works. There's another, there, there's another place where the, the author is trying to get across the idea of this is really pure gold. And the Hebrew, it simply says gold, gold. This is gold, gold. And so when the author is here, he's, he's, what we're learning is that he's, God is holy, holy, holy. Which means how holy do we feel God is? Do you think God is? Get that in your minds or hearts or whatever. And then double that. All right, and then take that and double that again, right? He is beyond understanding holy. He's not just really holy, he's holy, holy, holy. And the earth is full of his glory because of it. And every time that this is declared about God, it says the place shook. Now this is not new information for Isaiah. He's already been speaking the word of God for five chapters before we get to chapter six. He knew in his mind, he knew about God, he knew God was holy. He had heard about the seraphim. He knew about the glory of the Lord. But in a real way, he came face to face with God for the first time. Something about his knowledge and ignorance was absolutely rebuked by the reality of who God is. It wasn't just for him to know God, about God. It wasn't just for him to speak his words, but to actually come face to face with him was something completely different. And how he responds is our focus today. Isaiah is gonna show us. It's gonna be really hard to come up with a good definition of confession. He's simply gonna show us what it looks like. He says, woe is me, I am lost. We're gonna learn these things about confession by God's grace, or I may have to ditch one of these, but I hope to talk about how how confession is ruining. It's ruinous. Confession is thorough. Confession is meant to be ongoing. And confession is meant to be communal. Meant to be communal. So confession is ruining, it's ruinous, it ruins us. Isaiah's ruined. Confession is not simply, an isol- is not talking about an isolated example of bad judgment. He says, I am lost. It literally means destroyed. It doesn't mean like lost on a map or on a road trip. 
that I'm too proud to ask directions for. This is, simp- this is saying I am ruined, cut off, destroyed. And the other sense of this word is silenced. He's silenced in God's presence because of his sin. There's, silent means there's nothing that he can say. There's no excuse he can give. There's nothing he can say about himself or do to defend himself. He's absolutely silenced. So we see that confession is clarity about who God is. Confession involves seeing God for who he really is and seeing sin for what it really is and to see ourselves for who we really are. And it's not, in confession means we don't just know it intellectually, we feel it. We have a sense of it. All of those things become not just information, but real. When knowledge of God, knowledge of sin, knowledge of ourselves come together and it's real, we call that confession. True confession has this sense of despair, of fear. Listen to what David said when he was under the conviction of sin in the presence of God in light of his holiness. Psalm 119, he says, God, do not utterly forsake me. Do not utterly forsake me. This is someone who walked with God, that was writing the Bible. In view of his sins, feels like God is gonna utterly forsake him. Not just kind of forsake, God, do not utterly forsake me because that is what I deserve. Psalm 39, 13, David says, look away from me, God. Turn away from me that I may smile again before I depart because of your gaze and I'm no more. Psalm 51, 9, he says, hide your face, God, from my sins. Again, in Psalm 51, it's probably the most famous psalm of confession. It says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. See, David was, he knew this is what, he felt this happening. He felt himself being removed from God's presence and the spirit lifting from him. It's what he deserved. Now, Chris, you may say to me, Chris, this seems really extreme. Like, okay, I, I understand, but, but David was a really bad guy. Like, he committed murder, not just accidental, but planned it, so that he could commit adultery, and then he had an, an elaborate scheme to lie about it. Right? And you might say, look, I'm not like that. Like, I may have slipped up here and there, but I'm not like that. Are you saying that this experience that Isaiah had and that David has is supposed to be normal? It's exactly what I'm saying. And here's, here's where we get it. We need to know or realize, I know this about myself, I know it's true for you that right now, you are deceived about the nature of your sin. You may know what it is, but we are deceived as to its nature. Because of who we are, we cannot help make light of it, and we are unable to take it seriously enough. Paul Tripp says this in this 
his beautiful book on Psalm 51 called Whiter Than Snow. He, he, he says this. He says, sin itself is deceitful. It hides itself. It defends itself. It wears masks. It bends its shape into more acceptable forms. It points fingers of blame and it even questions the goodness of God. Sin always first deceives the person who is sinning. See, we are wrong. We're wrong about our sin. It, we do not take it seriously enough. We are wrong about ourselves. We, in our own estimation, we are wrong. We are always esteeming ourselves better than we are. To know ourselves, we can't look to others. To really know ourselves, we can't compare ourselves to others to know how we really are because they're just like us. We love so much to do this, right? We love so much to find out ways that we're better than other people. We can't look to cultural standards. We can't look to social norms. Look at what happened to Harvey. That's what he was doing. But it was not okay back then, and it's not okay now. But he's saying through his confession, I'm not vile, I'm just behind the times. We cannot compare ourselves to modern to current standards. Because in 50 years, things that we say are bad will be good, and things that, are, that we consider good now will be considered bad. We have to have an objective standard. We have to look somewhere else. We can't look to others, we can't look to society. We can't look to ourselves because we care too much about the outcome of this assessment. We care too much about our righteousness to have an accurate view of ourselves. So if this is the case, then what are we to do? John Calvin helps us out a little bit. He says, we are corrupt, therefore we have a corrupt view of sin. And what in us may seem like perfection is really ill compared to the purity of God. Therefore, we can only have a true knowledge of ourselves in light of the knowledge of God. We have to bring ourselves to the light of the knowledge of God. We have to bring ourselves in, in contact with him in order to really know ourselves. Pastor John Newton of the 1700s had much to say about this. And he has taught me a lot recently in this recent book by Tony Reinke, who basically has summarized so many of his pastoral letters and is just helping the modern reader understand them. Pastor John Newton knew his sinfulness. He was a sailor in every way. He owned and ran a slave trading company. It wasn't until he almost died in a storm that he was humbled and he turned to God. He is most known to us as the wretch that was saved by amazing grace. And he said this about the depth of confession in the life of a Christian. He said, we must discover our sin if we are to be forgiven. We must feel our own sin and it must shake us. This feeling of our sin is the sure mark of the work of grace. In Christ, there is all sufficient hope and forgiveness for a murderer who has killed a thousand people but there is no hope for a sinner who has not come face to face with the indwelling disease of his sin. 
We must feel our malady before we rightly prize our physician and appeal to him as our all-sufficient solution. The pain of confession is a necessary grace-given pain. See, whether we're Isaiah, David, Calvin, Newton, Chris DeRocco, or Harvey Weinstein, our sin has ruined us in light of the holiness of God. We are ruined. David said, my iniquities have gone over my head. They're like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. I hope we have realized or are coming to realize that sin cannot be managed. It must be confessed. And it must be confessed thoroughly. That's our second point. Confession is thorough. Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. He could have confessed so many different things. Why this one? He refers to his lips. First, he sinned with his words. Now, we don't know exactly what he said that was sin, right? But we don't need to know because we know how the tongue works. We know what, we know how this works, right? Jesus taught us in Matthew 12, it's out of the abundance of the heart it's from our desires. It's what we want. It's the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. See, James teaches us as well that the tongue can be a world of unrighteousness because our mouths are simply a conduit for the damaging desires of our hearts. So confession must be specific about behavior, yes, but we cannot stop there. Because sin, like Isaiah is saying, is not about what we've done, but it's why we do what we do or why we've done what we've done. It's the why. I don't know if you've ever gotten these texts or phone calls from your spouse, but my wife will often send me these SOS texts about something going on with the kids. Something like, kid A, did not do blank like I told them, right? Or something like kid A just did this to kid B. Or kid C just said that she's taken the car, has made plans for the evening and won't be home for dinner without asking permission, okay? All of those things happen in my house on a regular basis. Now, you know, I'm a decent husband, right? So when I get these phone calls, how do I respond? Honey, I am so sorry that you've had to deal with that today. I'm so sorry that our beautiful children have been persecuting you all day long. Can you wanna tell me more about how that made you feel? You know, before we talk more, can, can I just pray for you? That is not what I say, <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't think for a minute that's what I say. <clears throat> I usually say something like these words that no husband should ever say to their wife. Honey, why didn't you just do this instead? So that the behavior wouldn't have happened. What am I doing? I'm angry. I'm angry because I want my house to be at peace I don't want my wife to be all ragged at the end of the day because she's been persecuted by my children. 
I don't like coming home to deal with all of that, right? I, I don't like that. See, I, there's other things that I want. I'm shifting blame because I know I'm ultimately responsible for what's happening in my home and I want to shift the blame to her. That's what I do. Honey, why didn't you just... Now, being a decent husband, I usually realize my mistake. Mistake. And when I get home, I say, Rebecca, I am so sorry. I should not have said that to you. Will you please forgive me? Again, not wrong, right? But that's like a C minus. Why? Because I stopped at my behavior. I didn't say anything about why I said what I said. See, this is what God cares about. It's not just the actions, but it's the wants behind our actions. See, God, see, what's wrong is that we have moved away from God with our actions, but we've moved away from him with our desires. It's because of what we want over and against him that's the problem. See, we want stuff and we say stuff unkind and we hurt people to get what we want. In that moment, I wanted satisfaction. I wanted deflection. I did not want her blaming me for what was going on. See, David says, Psalm 51, verse six, delight, God delights in truth in the inward being. What does truth in the inward being look like in that situation? Me saying, Rebecca, I was angry and I tried to punish you with my words for what happened. I was trying to control you. That's why I said what I said. Please forgive me. It's not because I was having a bad day. It's not because our, our kids were sinning more this day than the previous day. See, sin is a deliberate act of the will to get what we want. And if we don't confess the wants, if we don't confess the desires, grace will not work there and no boundaries, no rules will ever help us if we never confess why we break them in the first place. Isaiah is a man of unclean lips. This is a strange confession coming from a prophet. He's been writing the Bible for five chapters. How can he say this? Speaking is what he does best. What's he teaching us? What's he realizing? What's he teaching us? Is that even his best deeds done for God are still tainted with sin. Sin is so pervasive. It gets into everything that we do. It's our self-awareness of what we're doing that taints everything. There is a book that I believe that every person deep down inside wants to write or a blog post or something like that. This is what I would, I would call mine, humility and how I achieved it. <laughs> See, the, the crazy thing is the more we talk about humility, the less humble we become. <clears throat> the less we talk about confession, I'm sorry, the more we talk about confession, the less real it is. See, as I've been preparing this, thinking about this, I've been thinking, you know, man, I'm, I know a lot about confession now. I, I'm actually getting pretty good at this. 
I can't wait to tell everybody what I know about humility. (laughs) See, it's the self-awareness that we have of everything we do that taints it. And And in confession, it's so easy for us, even in confessing our sins to God and to others, to think, how will people perceive me if they see me doing this noble thing? Man, how is this person going to perceive me when, when I'm coming clean? In the back of my head, I'm, I'm thinking, man, people are going to see me as such a good guy, so humble, so real. That's awful. Our confession needs confession. You're, we're not confessing truthfully. None of us are. All of our confessions are like Harvey Weinstein's. There's a beautiful part in um, one of the poems in the Valley of Vision, this collection of Puritan poems. It's just so, I read this 25 years ago and I've not forgotten it, that our tears that we shed in repentance, they need to be washed themselves. There's something of ourselves even in our tears. So confession is ongoing. Isn't it? Have you ever wondered why this sin is still such a part of our lives? John Newton really helped me here. This was so good. He said, indeed, the Lord could make us holy as angels in a moment, but is rather pleased to accomplish our deliverance from sin gradually. And we can be sure that it is for wise and gracious ends. Because he knows how and designs to overrule this remaining evil to the advancement of his glory. Now what what are some of these wise and gracious ends produced by the need for ongoing confession? I'm gonna give you one, humility. Simply humility. See, when we discover someone else's sins, we want to judge. We love feeling better than other people. When someone close then sins against us, we want to retaliate. We want to, we, we, we want to sin back. I mean, how dare they say that to us? How dare they say that about us to my, say this about me to a friend? How, how dare they not respond to me with kindness? We want to retaliate. When our spouse disappoints us, we want to pounce. When someone in our office lets us down, we want to fire off an email. Have you ever sent one of those emails? We're just pounding the keys. How could they do this to me? When our kids betray us, we get angry. Now, why? Why such hot emotion? Now, there's a million reasons, right? But, but I know one of them is this for sure, that in that moment, we respond this way to other people's sin because we have completely forgotten about ours. Newton said, whoever is truly humbled through confession will not be easily angry, not be rash, but will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners, knowing that if there's a difference between he and they, I think that's grammatically correct, but anyway, there's a difference. It is grace that has made it. 
and that he himself has the seeds of every evil in his own heart. See, this is the, this is the only way, this is the only way to not destroy people. Paul Tripp says, it is spiritually dangerous to allow yourself to be more upset by the sin of people around you than with your own sin. And Isaiah illustrates this perfectly. He he says, I am a man of unclean lips. He confesses this before he says, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips as well. This is real humility, to be more aware of the sin of others than we are of our own. See, here's the thing. Without Without this continual need for confession, and without this continual awareness of our sin that keeps popping up, our self-righteousness would absolutely destroy us. Our self-righteousness would be, help us be monsters toward everyone. There, is, there would be nothing in us to not help us feel better than others. So if we find ourselves judging, accusing, pouncing, all these things, it's because confession, daily confession, is not at work in our lives. It's because we are expecting more from others when they sin against us than God requires of us toward him when we sin. We have been forgiven of this much sin, but we are unable to forgive someone of that much sin. That's what's happening when we pounce and when we judge. And he's doing this. He's revealing this sin in us. He's revealing this sin in you, even right now as I talk, ultimately for his glory. He is gonna be glorified most when his righteousness, not ours, is put on display. And when in our weakness, we depend on his strength alone. That's how he gets glory, when we are most dependent upon him. And it's through confession that that we are reminded of who we are, who God is. He gets glory from that. Now, how do we come face to face with God? Are we supposed to wait or somehow wait for a vision like Isaiah had? Or do we sin like David did? No. We actually have something more intense and closer than what Isaiah experienced. Jesus is explaining this to the disciples right before he goes to the cross, dies, resurrects, and then ascends back to the Father. The disciples are worried. They don't want Jesus to leave, and he's comforting them, and he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the Helper, capital H, Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. See, God the Spirit brings us face to face with the holiness of God. And he uses his words and he uses his people. Confession is communal. When we listen to God's words with God's people, we are meant to experience in some degree what Isaiah has experienced. And I pray we do that more and more. James says to experience this more and more, we have to confess our sins to one another Have you ever wondered why it is not enough to simply confess our sins to God in private? When it's it's clearly against God that we have sinned. And And James is saying this not just about our sins against one another, 
Like if I've sinned against Ray, then I confess that sin to Ray and ask him to forgive me. He's not talking about that alone. He's talking about I confess my sins against God to others. Why do I have to do that? Why am I encouraged to do that? And I don't, all I know is what we have here in his word, but we've found this to be true, haven't we? Many of you have found this to be true, that, that we are most honest with God when we are honest with one another. And we do that when we take communion every week. We're actually doing this public confession. We are saying to one another, not just I believe this, but I am a sinner. I have sinned, I've sinned this week. And I'm coming like all of us, we're coming together to confess our sins together. This is what happens in our communities when we gather every week. This is what we want to be doing for one another. It's what we want to be doing for one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer helped shed some light on this for me. It was really helpful. He said, if we only confess our sins to God in private, how do we know that we're not just confessing our sins to ourselves? and also granting ourselves absolution or forgiveness? And could this be the reason that our count, for our countless relapses and the feebleness of our obedience? Could it be that we're living off self-forgiveness and not real forgiveness? Self-forgiveness can never lead to a breach of sin with sin. This can only happen by the judging and pardoning word of God itself. How do we know we're dealing with God? It's a man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. Now, is, is this a law? Is this something we have to do? He says, no, but it's actually an offer of divine help to you be given a place where you can confess your sins to another brother or sister. Our community gathered the, the, this week and, and, one of, and one of the guys prayed. He was, he, at the end, he was thanking God that, it's, that by God's grace, it's okay not to be okay when we gather, when we get together. What a grace. But know that, that when he prays this and when we say this, we don't mean that we gather simply to help people feel better about themselves. That we don't gather just to help people feel better about the sin that other people are doing. We gather and confess our sins to one another and own that with each other because we want to hate our sin together. We want to together help each other get face, get face to face with God so that we might be able to confess these things together and be free from these things together. See, this is not about, we don't gather and confess our sins to feel better about ourselves. We do that so we can feel better about our Savior. We dare not, we dare not allow these precious gatherings to become a support group for sin, but to become an encouragement to bring ourselves face to face with God. Back in Isaiah, and I'm, we're, this is the end here. Isaiah, what, what's, what, what happened? We left Isaiah back to him. It says, after he's confessed his sin, he said, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand on a burning coal that he had taken tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth. And behold, this has touched your lips, the seraphim says. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Isaiah does nothing after he's confessed his sin 
He's ruined, he's silenced. He's not defending himself. He is not making any promises. He's not coming down front and rededicating his life. God responds. Swiftly and graphically and painfully, God responds, touching his lips with a coal from the altar. What's on this altar? What's on this altar? A sacrifice, a substitute. What is Isaiah learning in this moment? He is learning that the fire of God's holiness that should have come out from his presence to consume him has instead consumed an animal sacrifice as a substitute in his place. That God has provided on this altar that he's right next to a substitute for the wrath of God. This is how God's economy works. And Isaiah knew this. We know this, that a fire from God's holiness should come and consume us in view of God's holiness. What is Isaiah? He's learning that his guilt is gone. His sin has been covered. This, this, this is so helpful. This, this coal is put on his lips, the very thing that he did wrong. He's learning in that moment that, that God is not just covering sin in general, but that God, by his grace, is actually covering Isaiah's specific sins. It will help us today to know that Jesus on the cross did not just take sin in general that we must apply for, but he actually, that he actually took our specific sins with him to the cross and God punished our specific actions and the things behind them on the cross. We have a substitute. 700 years later, Jesus, after this moment, Jesus would not be consumed by hot fire, but actually the fire of God on a cross. And we know this hit Isaiah because then he goes, he hops up from the ground. It's like a little kid, no longer ashamed, no longer, no, no longer aware of himself, no longer afraid of God's presence. It's like he hops up off the ground and says, here am I. Here am I, dad. Here I am, send me, here I am, see me. No longer turning your, don't you have to turn your face away from me because I know in your presence now because of what you have done for me, because of this sacrifice, I am now free. I no longer have to hide, I no longer have to run from you or anyone else. Here I am, isn't that the, isn't that the result of real confession? Isn't that the result of what, of what Jesus has done for us? Now in view of our sin, we don't have to hide from God. We don't have to hide from one another. We can go to one another, here I am, in all my sinfulness, and in all God's grace, and in all his righteousness, and none of my own. Here I am. We're now once and finally free, open to one another in a way we never have been before. See, whoever hides his sin is utterly alone. And God is saying, now you don't have to be alone anymore. A substitute has been given, a substitute has been sacrificed, a substitute has been punished in your place. If you will simply come clean and confess your sin to me, you no longer have to hide. And you no longer have to hide from anyone else. What a grace. That's what we get to do in communion right now. And I just wanna encourage you to start thinking, what am I bringing, what am I confessing to God as I take communion today? What is it that I'm confessing? This is the third means that God uses to bring us face to face with his holiness. 
The bread represents his body that was broken in my place. The, the juice will represent the, the life that was poured out in our place. We can confess our sins to God now. No matter what the cost, I know this is possible, that for, that for you to be honest about something you've done with God and with some, someone else, it may cost you something. It may cost you face and reputation in front of a friend. It, it may cost you something at work. It may cost, it may, you may lose a client over you having to confess something that you did that might have not been completely honest. It may, add, it may add conflict to your marriage for you to confess your sin. But let me tell you something. None of those things that I just mentioned are worth anything without a clean conscience and peace with God. Let's go to him now so that we can enjoy anything and everything that he has for us. Let's take a minute to think and then we'll be invited to come to the table together. You've been listening to a message by Chris Rocco given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.